Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. There's no better to finish, no better place to finish these uh, series of lessons today than to talk about how everything we talk about brings us to the book of Revelation in reality. Because in the book of Revelation, the idea of adultery or adulterers is still uh, addressed in the last days in the book of Revelation. Whenever we read like chapters 2 and 3, whenever the letters are written to the seven churches of Asia and all these different churches that are written to and some of them are are commended for what they have done. Some of them are rebuked for things that they needed to repent over. Sometimes both of those things were done to some of the churches. If you read those two chapters in the book of Revelation, and it addresses each one of those seven churches, after it addresses the church and says where it may be lacking or where it's done good or what it may need to do differently, it says at the very end of each addressment to each of those churches, these words, He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit saith unto the church. Whenever we've looked over the past several weeks to understand that the terminology from Genesis even to the end of the book now, of whenever it talks about them having eyes and not seeing, ears and not hearing, prominently and predominantly always is referring to people that have been caught in idol worship. Or people that have become just like the gods that they worship. Have eyes and see not and ears not hear not. John the writer of the book of Revelation is really making a plea in the last book to these churches. That if you have an ear let him hear. In other words what John is conveying. If you've not already given yourself over to idol worship. And have not already fallen prey to idolatry and become like those things. He says then pay attention. Because I have some things to say unto you. Whenever we read in the book of Revelation, the first and the last churches, we understand as we read these that they are having some identity issues. That is both Ephesus and Laodicea. They're having some identity issues. The three middle churches that are addressed, Pergamos, Thyatira, and Sardis, they have some uh, issues to varying degrees of, uh, of remaining faithful. Uh, while there are some of them that are compromising who they are and what they are because of the pagan cultures that are around them. And then the second and the sixth church, which is Smyrna and Philadelphia, they are churches that are remaining faithful uh, through the attacks of the environment and the world that they are living in. Now, here's something important for us today. During the time of the prophets in the Old Testament, some of those major prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, they came into different settings with the voice of the Lord, and they would say, thus saith the word of the Lord, thus and so. And many times when a prophet came, I, I know sometimes we lean to the fact that a prophet is just something that, uh, you know, is going to foretell something that has happened or already happened in your life. But prophets, in many regards, was a voice of warning for the people. They were a voice of warning for the people. And they would come with voices of warning that if this wasn't corrected, if this didn't take place, then this is what you can expect concerning judgment. And they came, really, in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, they come many times speaking to people that were caught in the vice of idolatry. 
that were caught in the vice of serving or giving allegiance to other gods. And here's the thing that we must understand about the prophets, and we'll see this also in the book of Revelation, and that is this, is that whenever they would come with these warnings and they would plead many times, Jeremiah, he's the weeping prophet, right? Because he gave every warning under the sun and nobody listened to him. And so he's crying his eyes out because he's doing the best that he can trying to do what God told him to do, but no one's even heeding to the thing he's saying. And that happened many times also to Isaiah and to Ezekiel. They came with these warnings, right? The voice of the Lord, but nobody would hear. Or if I can say, it was as though they fell on deaf ears. But that's what happened whenever you deal with a people that's already showed themselves out to idols. They have become like what they have committed themselves to. And so they are, they're very stoic. They're very rebellious. They are not listening. They are not hearing. They are not heeding the voice of the prophet. All right? And this is oftentimes then something that would happen. You see in your Bibles that these prophets many times wouldn't just resort to a spoken message, but they would use some type of illustration in God's Word. You can read of Jeremiah. He uses props. He uses symbols just beyond his verbal warning. He used props and symbols. We see in Jeremiah, he used a, a marred girdle to illustrate something. He went down to the potter's house, and there was the potter's vessel and that whole symbolism. There's an earthen pot that he used, two baskets full of figs that he used. It wasn't just what he spoke verbally, but he's trying to illustrate something to him. Why? Because they were having eyes and they were having ears and not hearing. So he says, I'm going to see how their eyes are. And he goes to the props and he goes to the symbols. And so God's warning goes a step further, a step further to see if they could heed or, or if they could see with their eyes what God was trying to convey with them. And so that's the, the, that, the, that is the, the pattern of the matter. If they're not going to hear, I'm going to see if they'll get it if I show it to them. God in those, in those times is raising the bar trying to reach his people. Raising the bar trying to get their attention and many times with the parables and the stories and then also the props and the symbols that he used many times eventually those very things would bring judgment upon the idolater because they would not still see and they would not listen to what the lord would say and as we spoke last week they would be given over to the power of their transgression whenever god moved to the mode of using props through the prophets and we will see very clearly, there is a lot of symbolism, props, and symbols and signs that John is using or going to use in the last day as it's illustrated for the same purpose. People's not heeding what is being spoken. So God says, I'm going to see if they can see with their eyes. Amen. And so whenever we get to that place, God is doing one or two things. He is trying to hopefully make a last-ditch effort for those that have given themselves over to things that they should not give themselves over to. But he's also trying to shake us as believers that may have grown a little complacent. Amen. May have grown a little complacent and erred in our position. Remember in the Old Testament when David had sinned with Bathsheba, right? He didn't find repentance for a period of time. He sinned with Bathsheba. He ended up murdering the man. And there were a lot of things. As a matter of fact, if you start looking at it, David almost broke every one of the Ten Commandments after his sin with Bathsheba. Sin led to more sin, as sin always does. 
And so whenever he was doing this and he, he was trying to keep everything hid and everything just kind of put off to the side, no one's going to know. We could, you know, get rid of Uriah or her husband and so on and so forth. We'll just take care of this. It was in that mode that God no doubt was reaching for him all along the journey. But what did God finally have to do? He went just from verbal to illustration. And he sent the prophet Nathan to tell the story about a man having uh, a stranger come and needing to feed him, but he didn't slay one of his lambs. He went and stole another guy's ewe lamb. And, and David's irate and like, well, my goodness, you know, the guy, this should happen. He should be killed and he should have to return for it. You know what happened? God was saying, David, if my verbal doesn't get you, can you get it through an illustration? Amen. And so he was trying to shake the awareness of David to his own sin. So whenever we get to those moments of symbols and signs, it's God's last-ditch effort to get our attention. And we see that in the book of Revelation. Amen. Because them in the book of Revelation, those churches, seven churches that the Lord spoke to, amen, seemingly were not spiritually discerning what the Lord was trying to say unto them. So he moved then into beasts and things with ten horns and women riding on beasts. And we see the sun and the moon, all these things that come to bear as you read the book of Revelation, see all these signs and symbols, God's last ditch effort. For the churches, the seven churches of Revelation, that he could some speak to them, shake them, and those believers that are on the periphery, if you will, wake them up from their complacency. One of the things that the Lord has against the church of Thyatira was that she suffered, the Bible says, or tolerated Jezebel to teach and seduce his people to commit fornication and eat things sacrificed to idols. The word suffers in the book of Revelation means they let her be or they permitted her or they left it alone. In other words, again, our English word I think is good is that they just tolerated her. The Bible says in Revelations 2 and verse 20, Jesus is speaking, notwithstanding I have a few things against thee, this is the church of Thyatira, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, who Jezebel was one that was an idol worshiper, she married Ahab, the king of Israel. She brought some of her idolatry, and Ahab allowed it into the nation of Israel. He said to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed into idols. And I gave her a space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Thyra, Tyra, again, this is the Lord addressing this church, not just verbally, but he's also going to use illustration because he's trying to get their attention. They have sowed themselves out to something other than God. And so Thyra, Tyra possessed in their city more trade guilds than any other town of their size in Asia. Uh, more interested in that, each trade guild had its own god, little G-O-D, right? They believed that this thing guarded them or was a guardian unto them. And as a result of that, they worshipped that god, whatever was a part of their trade guild. And so these guilds that they had and their gods that they had as a result of these trade guilds were dangerous threat to the church there. And so God is shaking them and saying, listen to me, he that hath an ear, let him hear. But if you don't hear, let me give you an illustration. I'm trying to get your attention. The church of Smyrna in the book of Revelation was the center for seizure. Not seizure, but 
Caesar worship. Not like season, okay? <laughs> and that worship was a test. And let me slow down here. A test for their political loyalty. Because once a year, Roman citizens or people that were a part of the Roman Empire, which the Jews were sucked into the Roman Empire, they had to burn a pinch of incense on an altar to the Godhead of Caesar. And when they'd done so, history tells us that they were given a certificate that guaranteed that they had performed that little pinch of incense, that worship, if you will, and they performed the religious duty. The thing is, if you did not do that, that little pinch of incense into Caesar, and they revered him as a god, if you did not do that, they were considered an outlaw by the Roman Empire. So what was going on was this. Their religious practice helped them validate or substantiate their political loyalty. If you do this, then we know you're loyal to Caesar. If you do that, then we know that you're loyal to our God, if you will, Caesar. All right? Folks, and the reason why I'm saying all this today is because that's a description. Everybody, you know, a lot of stuff talking about end times, so let's talk about end times a little bit today. That is a description of how what the Old Testament or the New Testament scripture and revelations, how the false prophet who in Revelation 13 is the beast that comes from the earth, that's a description. When I just told you concerning Caesar and all that matter, that's a description how the false prophet is going to aid the Antichrist in Revelation 13, who is the beast that comes from the sea, going to aid him and the, the, the dragon, which is known as Satan, empowering them both. That's how he's going to, because the false prophet is going to say, you need to worship the Antichrist. You need to give your allegiance to the Antichrist. We're going to look at this just a little bit later today, but isn't it amazing? The book of Revelation, it talks about the image, everybody say image, of the beast. Because in reality... All of the false idolatry from the book of Revelation 4 is a preparation room. Is a all of Israel's heartache and failure and struggle with that all along the way is really a preparation room about what they'll be loyal to in the day that the image of the beast is upon the earth. That if they would bow to an image then, and I'm not just talking about gold and all that. I'm talking about those that we talked about even of our heart in previous weeks. If they'll do it now, what will keep them from bowing to the image of the beast then? Because the false prophet in the book of Revelation, you can read it in chapter 13, it will cause people to worship the image of the beast which is the Antichrist. And they will convince, try for the people to take his mark. And if they do not take his mark, what are they doing in taking his mark? They're becoming identified with him. They're becoming as he is. Mm -hmm. If they don't take his mark, then they shall suffer death. Someone say amen. So there is a conditioning. I'm telling you this this morning. This is not scare tactic. This is just truth. There is a conditioning in the world right now to come for people to conform to the image of what they've been committing to live in their life in this world. Mm -hmm. And the way that we treat it, the way that we entertain idolatry now 
is the dressing room rehearsal for the days of the reign of the false prophet and the Antichrist. Bishop Newton, his dissertations on prophecy said, it was customary among the ancients for servants to receive the mark of their masters and soldiers of their general and those who were devoted to any particular deity of the particular of the particular deity to whom they were devoted they would they would receive a mark of these whether it be a master or a general or a de deity that they devoted themselves to these marks he says were usually impressed on their right hand or on their forehead and consisted of some hieroglyphic character or of the name expressed in vulgar letters or of the name disguised in numerical letters according to the fancy of the imposer. Those not identified with the Lord, not worshiping the Lord, will be conditioned to accept the identity of the image of the beast. The identity, if you will, of their little G-O-D. They will become, and the whole culmination of time here, they will become what they worship. They will conform to what they have committed them li their lives to, whether for better or worse. Now we say, Brother McGee, I would never do that. No, no, I'm smarter than that. I would never do that. Why for the Holy Ghost if no one else does? But my question to you, but we'll worship and commit ourselves to lesser gods now and assume their identity and conform almost mindlessly Sometimes almost unperceptively, and we'll say, well, we're going to be tough then. What's the scripture say about the horsemen if you can't run? What about whenever the breaking of Jordan happens? What it says, if we... Right now, we're having the quizzes. The test is at the end. Amen. And the quizzes are conditioning us for how we're going to do on the test. If you don't care about the quiz, the test may be a little chancy. The Bible says in Luke 20, got a lot of scripture. I got to really move today. Luke 20, verse 23, but he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, this is Jesus now about ready to speak because they brought him Something that they want to know about paying taxes. And they say, why tempt you me, he says. Shoot me a penny. Whose image, he says. And superscript, hath it. They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's. And unto God the things which be God's. What the Lord is alluding to here is this is that from the very beginning, which we looked at the very first week of this study, from the very beginning, mankind was made in the image and the likeness of God. He says, show me the coin. What image is on it? They said Caesar's. He said, well, then that belongs to Caesar. But he follows it up by saying, but render the things to God, render the things which be God's unto him. He's alluding all the way back, amen, to the creation of mankind when mankind was stamped, if you will, with the image and the likeness of God. And so Jesus is reminding the religious leaders of that day the vital importance of giving God what's due to him. Amen. And if you are identified with him, then you are his. 
But if you start to identify with other things, huh, then we are none of his. The Bible says in that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, we cast out devils in your name. We did this in your name. And he'll look at them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. How could that be when humanity was made in the image of God? Because somewhere along the journey, they've sold themselves out to false gods and have become what they worship. And they no longer bear his image. They bear the image of something else. Amen. So God's people, though, as, as image bearers of God, they will belong to him. And we see this all throughout the scripture. In the Old Testament, part and parcel, it's one reason why there was a mark of circumcision that were upon the bodies of the Hebrew males. Because this is still some of that laying the groundwork of this conditioning of being identified by whatever it is we are serving or worshiping. And so that identification mark of circumcision upon them, amen, made them set them apart as being God's people. Whenever Pharaoh's daughter went down to the riverbank and she found Moses in that little ark of bulrushes that his mommy had made, and the Bible says that she pulled and that basket close to her, she exclaimed without anybody telling her this is one of the Hebrews children and I declare unto you the reason why she knew that is because mama in that three months that they had that baby already had the mark of circumcision upon that child declaring that it was a Hebrew it had a mark that identified him with their God Exodus 2 and 6, this is where it happened. And when she, this is Pharaoh's daughter, when she had opened it, the ark, she saw the child and behold the babe wept and she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Again, it's amazing. They only had him for three months. They said they, they seen that he was a goodly child. He should have been thrown in the Nile. He should have been uh, uh, killed by the midwife. All these things were already set in place, but he was a good little child. They kept him, they hid him, they protected him, but they had enough time, amen, to get the identification mark of their God upon him. Can I say this this morning? It's never too early to get the identifying mark of your God on your children. We got to use our time wisely. Amen. We got to use our time wisely. The Bible says in Colossians 2 and verse number 11, in whom, the whom it's speaking of is Jesus Christ. You can look at verses ahead of this. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12 is about ready to explain to us what that circumcision without hands is. What that mark for New Testament believers is. He says buried with him, Christ, in baptism, he says, you're circumcised too, but it's a circumcision without hands. And the Old Testament is a literal circumcision of cutting off the flesh that denoted them as a Hebrew, as his. But in the New Testament, we change form. It's a circumcision without hands, and that circumcision is a putting off the body of sin that whenever you're buried with him in baptism... Yeah, yeah. That's for, along with your repentance, for the remission of sins. Look now, verse 12, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith and the operation of God, who have raised him from the dead. He says, I'll tell you what the circumcision without hands is. It's your baptism and your resurrection. Amen. In Christ Jesus. So again, folks, listen. 
My baptism is more than a confession of faith. My baptism is a mark of identification of he upon my life. And that's even so much more the reason why I take his name. In the book of Revelation, when they take that in their hand or forehead, it's going to be the name of the beast or the number of his name. They're all pointing toward his name. He's trying to fabricate something that's already been steadfast, amen, concerning the church, that when we go down the watery grave of baptism, we take the mark and identification of his name in baptism. So you're going to take a name. It's going to be either the Lord's name or the name of the beast that is to come. Whoo! almost feel the Holy Ghost around here a little bit. Our baptism, our infilling of the Holy Ghost, all those are identifiers for us now. And in doing so, through your repentance, your baptism, and infilling of the Holy Ghost, look what happened. Think here for a moment. Look what happened. You have become as Christ was. He was crucified. Your flesh is crucified. You're becoming like he is. He was buried. Through symbolism, you're buried in the water grave of baptism. They can on his name. He resurrected. You're becoming like what you worship. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, and we've borne the image of the earthly, but we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So the law of God the law of God in the Old Testament, considering this mark, considering this identification, the law of God in the Old Testament was to be an identifying mark of the Jews as well. They had ribbons of blue. You can read it in the Old Testament. They had ribbons of blue that they would put on the corners of their garment for the purpose that it would remind them of the laws of the Lord, thus reminding them of this, who they belonged to, who they were identified with. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 6, Many of you know some of these verses in Deuteronomy 6. In verse 6, it says, and I'm going to read verse 8 as well, and these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Verse 8, and thou shalt bind them for a sign. Everybody say sign. Upon thine hand. They shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Isn't that interesting? They'll be bound on the hand and on the frontlets of your eyes. There's going to be two places in the end where they say that the mark of the beast can be on your hand or upon your forehead. See, he, the enemy is so cruel that he's, he's not authentic or genuine in anything. He is nothing but an imitator. The phylacteries where the mason knows what I'm speaking of, and you've seen it sometimes, those Jewish people with little black boxes on their foreheads or uh, they have all these straps that are wrapped around their arm. It can be left or right. I, I, from my understanding, that has a lot to do whether or not they're left-handed or right-handed or if they have somebody else do it for them. But they have little boxes then that are many times it's on their bicep, these little phylacteries that are worn by Jewish males that are 13 years and older. And so these little black boxes, uh, they have in them little scrolls and pieces of paper that hold the Shema, the Deuteronomy 6 and 4, 
here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And there's other scriptures that's contained in these little boxes that helps them. There's other scriptures there about uh, them remembering that uh, God had been their redeemer from Egypt. There's scriptures like that that's in there as well. There's also scriptures in there that reminds them about the reward of keeping the commandments of God all bound in these little boxes upon their arm and in between their forehead. And so, again, they're tied on their left or their right arm, usually on their bicep. And, and from what I've read and from what I've learned from other people, too, is a lot of times it's placed so that whenever their arm is at rest, those scriptures are close to the heart of the body. And then the other one is there up on their head. And so it's upon, if you will, the head, the center, the forehead. In other words, all these things of God being one. And he is the one that delivered them. And the reward, amen, of keeping the commandments of God. It's something that needs to be upon constantly their heart and mind. All right? And they serve, though, in reality as a connection to their God. Right? Because every command that we have does nothing more but creates a bond between us and our God when we follow through with what God has asked for us to follow through with. They are binding us, if we could say it like that, to our one and only God. Now look, verse Deuteronomy 28, verse number 10, this verse is regarded as alluding to the head phylactery that they wear in Deuteronomy 28 and 10. He says, the Bible says, and all people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord and shall be afraid of thee. Many writers say that this is referring to the phylacteries that they wore. They'll see that. And they'll know that you're called by the name of the Lord. You know what they're saying? They're going to see that mark. They're going to see that sign because he said that this is a sign in Deuteronomy 6 and they're going to know who you belong to. Because listen, when we talk about the name of the Lord or we talk about the name of anything, a name deems ownership. Huh? Right? You sign papers for your car, your name's in there? Who's that belong to? That's Lisa's car. Right? Whose house is that? That's Paul McGee's house. Not only that, name, particularly whenever you talked about adoption in the Old Testament and in the New Testament also, you adopted a new character with a new name, right? We have the Old Testament Jacob that's known as the supplanter, but his name is changed to Israel. With that new name comes a new character. Even in our real day today and considering Christ and his church, a bride in marriage typically, I know they're kind of doing away with it in some places today, but a bride in marriage typically takes on the name of the one that she's now one with. She becomes identified with him. Woo! She became one to what she has committed the rest of her life to. Through taking on his name. Oh, God, I feel the Holy Ghost. So when I have the name of the Lord upon my life, that's who I'm one with. That's who I'm joined with. That's who I'm identified with. If you take on the name or the mark of that which is in the book of Revelation, that's what owns you. That's what you... That's what you joined yourself with. That's what you will be identified with. Someone say amen. 
Hallelujah. Why do you think that even the Old Testament garb of the high priest and he had his girdle and he had all these different garments, his breastplate, the Bible says upon his head was a miter and there was a golden plate and on it in the middle there was written on the forefront of his head, holiness unto the Lord. Marking that man, that's who he is. He is, if you will, acquainted with, described by and identified with the holiness of the one he worships. Amen. Marked. Marked, marked. On one hand, in Revelation chapter number 14, it even talks about the 144,000 Jews that have their father's name written in their foreheads. But this principle also exists on the other side of the tracks as well. Listen, people will receive, listen to me well, people will receive the mark of the beast. They... And this is interesting to me because through the lifetime of Israel, whether it be a golden calf, whether it be a frog, whatever it may be, all these things, they're worshiping the creature and not the creator. If you will, beast. And so they worship throughout their history of time differing beasts. <laughs> and in the end, they'll receive the identifying mark of the beast. The Bible says in Revelation 13 and verse number 16, and he, the he it speaks of is the beast of the earth, which is known as the false prophet. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. So the false prophet will cause as many as possible, all right, as many as it can, first of all, to worship. This order here is very important in verse 16 and 18. His first line of business is to cause them to worship the beast. Worship it. And then... Those, verse number 15 tells us, who do not worship will be killed. All right? But this is important. Read it in your scripture. But the worshipers will become identified with what they've worshipped by receiving the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Folks, this is everything I've been talking to you for the past five times I've stood up here and talked about mirror image. It works on both sides of the fence. That's the reason why they preface that you'll get him to worship first because there, it is an automatic, it is a automatic uh, progression that if you worship it, you'll become like it. If you'll worship, you'll identify with it. it. Amen. Sure. You say, well, Brother McGee, they, they may buy or sell. That's right, because they can't do it without the mark. But the trade-off is this, eternal punishment. They'll be turned over to the power of their transgression. The Bible says in Revelations 14, I know this is steep maybe on a Sunday morning here, amen, but it's okay. It's still God's word. The Bible says, Revelation 14, verse 9, and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. 
constantly again. Worship, they receive the mark. Worship, they're identified. I said, well, Brother McGee, that's then. No, it's happening right now. We are in the dressing room of rehearsal, folks. Of how I, I cannot emphasize this enough today. I cannot emphasize this enough. That how we live our mode of life right now. Again, the key verse for our whole thing, they, they walked after vanity, they became vain. Genesis chapter number one, got a lot of scripture today. I'm trying to run, folks. Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, let's read it again. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. Everybody said dominion. Over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And so God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he, him, male and female, created he, them. Please note verse 26. I feel like the Holy Ghost touched my spirit in the past few weeks. Part of the purpose of man being made in the image of God was so that he would have dominion. The way that this is even is set up grammatically in verse number 26. Part of the reason that man was made in the image of God was so that he might have dominion. Man being made in the image of God was for him to rule over beasts of the field. Can I even say this? Beasts of the field, whether literal or through idolatry. Beasts of the field, etc. But listen, when man is left to himself, and he serves the creature more than he does the creator. He's marked by the image of the beast. And rather than him having dominion and it rule, him ruling over it, it has dominion and it rules over him. If you find trouble fighting and being victorious in some of your battles, you must stop and question, am I reflecting the image of the one that created me? Or have I jumped ship? Because when you practice in line with taking on that image and, and honing and protecting that, you have dominion as a result of that. Adultery then causes mankind to lose his true dominion. Listen to me today. And this is directed concerning no one. This is just directed concerning humanity for the years that I've been alive and what I know. The whole concept that nobody's going to tell me what to do are some of the final words that people oftentimes say before they lose dominion. And then, guess what? They are subjected to something that they pledge their allegiance to. What do you mean? Saying, well, you know, sometimes it's just like, no one's going to tell me what to do. And all of a sudden, they jump ship. And now they are under the power of the adversary. And you think you're making some of those decisions. You think that, yeah, you're really having your way. No, it's really the enemy having his way in your life and making you feel good as though you're having your way. You've been brought under the power of another. You've been brought under the, the, the dominion of the other. When you are no longer identified with him, you disconnect yourself from the power he has. Which, Scripture says, he has all power in heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. He told in the New Testament Scripture that he would give his image bearers, Brother Zach, he would give his image bearers power to tread on serpents and scorpions. Whew. 
he told them that he would give them all the power over the enemy and that nothing shall hurt them. Why? Because they had become what they worship. They bear his image and they bear the dominion that comes with bearing the image. They're joined with him. Not only that, others notice his power on them. Everybody doing okay? Just for your reference, in Mark chapter number 8, if you go there and look at it, Mark chapter 8, verses 16 through 21, there's some things that are going on. I'm trying to see where are we at on time. There's some things going on there, and what is going on, the Lord is pointing out that the true disciples of the Lord, there are some of them that's, that's in the process, if you will, of coming out of their idolatrous influences of the world around them because they are there. They're prominent. They're, they're within arm's reach of each one of us. But the question that he gave to them in the setting of Scripture is he asked them, he says, do you not yet see? He says, do you not yet see? Do you not yet understand? Because he understood. He said, you're in the process of being pulled away from that old life. You're in the process of breaking allegiance with those old gods and idols of the heart. And he just... He's just kind of taking a, 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 a little inventory about where they are. So you're not really where you need to be yet. Have you not yet? Do you not yet see? Do you not yet understand? What are you saying? Because again, I worshipers have I see not, have a mind, but they don't understand. He says, you not yet see, not yet. You're in the process. You're not yet totally sowed out. Huh? You're not yet totally sowed out. Isaiah even said like this. Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, he carries the potter clay symbolism uh, in the scripture, letting us know that God is forming us or forming Israel, if you will, as a nation, forming them as a piece of clay that is formed by a potter. And we are the works, he said, of course, of his hands, even restorative works, right? Because even Brother Maupin last week, you know, the clay, if it's going to be marred anywhere, you want it to be marred in the hands of the potter because he's not going to throw it away. He's going to rework it. So he's not just even forming works by his hands, but even restorative works. Works that have went a little skew, a little off to the side. But see, that contrast, that whole symbolism that, that, that Isaiah and Jeremiah used, that whole symbolism contrasts everything concerning idolatry. Because in this, God is forming us. With idolatry, man is forming their God. Huh? With this, God is forming us. Amen. Vessels of honor, vessels of dishonor, restorative works. But with idolatry, men are forming their own gods. With this, we are in the hand of our God. With the other, the God is in our hands. The last verse of 1 John, not the gospel of John, but 1 John. The last verse of 1 John admonishes this. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. Because the great subject matter of 1 John is a warning for them to not accept false teaching or false doctrine. All right? Or even with that in mind comes the advice that false doctrine and false teaching is really a mode of modern-day idolatry. Because Why? Because it's something that comes between you and God and separates you from God. Matter of fact, in Mark 8, Jesus wanted his disciples, they was about ready to go on a trip on the boat, and he said, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees and of Herod. They thought that he was talking about literal bread. 
There was just the feeding the, 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 the different thousands, and they thought, oh, we forgot to bring bread, and he's telling us to beware. But he makes it even more plain in Matthew 16. He tells them plainly. He said, whenever I was talking about being aware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, I was really talking to you about their doctrine. Because the Scripture says a little leaven does what? Leavens the whole lump. Just a little. You put a little yeast in the dough, just a little. That dough will start to puff up, start to expand. It multiplies just a little. That's the reason why in the book of Revelation it says, and even in the New Testament, no sin shall enter therein. Because you call it big, small, white, whatever you want to call it, a little. If given place in your life, will become much. It permeates, it affects, it infiltrates. Amen. And he says you got to beware of it because for our day, false doctrine and false teaching is just as equal to idolatry of the Old Testament because it separates you from God. Amen. In Deuteronomy 29 and verse 23, look at this. Sodom, in Deuteronomy 29, 23, you don't have to go there if you don't want to, Zach. This is just a, brother Zach, don't need to be disrespectful, but this is just a reference. Sodom is described as becoming brimstone. Sodom and Gomorrah, everybody remember or know the story if not you look back in like genesis 19 and a few chapters back further from that sodom is described as becoming brimstone it's described as burning it's described as salt you hear me it's described as salt listen to me very clearly god has touched my spirit this week when lot's wife looked back what did she become a pillar of salt she became what she longed for. She became a pillar of salt. She, hear me very clearly today. She was so wrapped up in Sodom, her judgment reflected the city's judgment. We're going to make a comparison here. Going to make a comparison here. Her judgment reflected the city's judgment. Listen to me. Those of the last day that have not served the Lord, and the rapture of the church takes place, and there's people left, and they're getting their marks for buying and selling, you know what's going to happen in the end? Those people, the wicked, as the Lord says, some are going to be resurrected into eternal life, others to damnation. You know what's going to happen? They are going to receive the judgment of what they've been worshiping. Follow me very clearly. Matthew 25 and verse 41, Jesus said, Then say, then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye curse. Listen to me now. Into everlasting fire prepared for who? Everlasting fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. The everlasting fire from the onset has been prepared, meant for. The devil and his angels. Let me say it like this. He never really meant for humanity to be meant for that type of punishment. That was for the devil and his angels. We were meant for heaven. We were meant for streets of gold. We were meant for gates of pearl. But if you identify, if you identify with him, and if you identify with his sins, and if you identify with the diabolical plan, then when judgment comes, you will have the same judgment of what you've worshipped judgment gets. Fire and brimstone and everlasting fire, fire will be yours. You may say, well, I didn't worship the devil, but... Oh, God. 
Lot's wife becomes a pillar of salt. She suffers the same judgment that the city had. That's what she longed for. Humanity will suffer the same judgment that the devil and his angels, what was meant for them, because we will have become like them. I know this is stout today. The everlasting fire is not meant for us. Paul said, and I'm just, just throwing this in and I gotta, I gotta go. Paul said to sacrifice to an idol was to sacrifice to a devil. That's what he says. And one cannot be both a partaker of the Lord's table and the table of devils. So with that being said, one may receive the punishment of the devil and his angels because their association with those things and matters are in opposition to God. They're more associated with the things that replace God. They didn't allow God to have the preeminence in their life. So since they can't sit at both tables, it's only going to be one table they can sit at. That's the adversary's table. And the judgment that's meant for him will become meant for us because we will in that moment become like him. Philippians 3 verse 18. For many walk of whom I told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame and who mind, look at it, who mind earthly things. Earthly things. For our conversation, which in many times in the New Testament, it's not talking about your talk, it's talking about your lifestyle. For our lifestyle is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue. There's your dominion again. Subdue all things unto himself. The fact of the matter is this. Modern day idolatry is this. If we don't watch it, we, we can become an idol unto ourselves. That is a major thing we're against today. Self-love. You know, I'm just going to, Brother Mason, it's just, you know, I'm just going to love myself as I am. If you're loving yourself as you are apart from God, does someone hear me too? If, you're, if your mind says, I'm just going to love, love me as I am. If you're loving yourself as you are apart from God, then you're loving yourself in your sin condition that comes all the way from Adam. That is not what God desires for you. In that mode, we become idols unto ourselves. Our, our, our God is our belly, and it has become inflated and ampli we've amplified ourselves. We stand in our own way between us and our God. Our desires, our lust, our wants. The Bible says in Philippians that these folks mine earthly things or things that are upon the earth. Many times in the book of Revelation, and I'm, I'm, I'm really, just stand with me. We'll, we'll run to a close. You can stand. I'm serious. These folks in Philippians, they, he says these are enemies of the cross. These people, they're minding themselves. They're minding earthly things. In Revelation, in Revelation, those that are entangled by the beast, those that are left, they are all times called, you can read it through the book of Revelation, they are oftentimes called with this phraseology, they that dwell upon the earth. They that dwell upon the earth. 
Because that contrasts the whole concept of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those of long ago, even in New Testament Scripture. It contrasts them. Because those that were sowed out to God were, were, were never so much the banner over their head, those that dwell upon the earth. They had this label, pilgrims and strangers. They were pilgrims and strangers. It was, it was Abraham who's, who was looking for a city whose builder and maker Woo! was God. It wasn't on the terra firma of the earth. It was above. Here's why scripture tells us, set your affections on the things that are above. Not on the things that are set. When the word set, you know what that means? I got control over that. I control where I set my affections. He's just admonishing me where to set them. Set your affections on. Don't be an earth dweller. Don't be minding earthly things. Look above. You're a pilgrim. You're a, you're a pilgrim. You are a stranger. The Bible says this, and I close. Revelations 13, verses 8 and 9. And this is one of those times that they are described as those that dwell upon the earth. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. That's the Antichrist. Whose names are not written in the book of the Lamb, in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Look at verse 9. This ditch effort. If any man hath an ear, let him hear. What are you doing, John? I'm still addressing idolatry if you have an ear. And it's, it's operable. And you've not become like what you've already worshipped. Then hear my plea. Hear my call. Because those who walk after vanity will become vain. But those that walk after righteousness will become righteous. Those that walk after the Lord will walk on streets of gold. But those that walk after the things of earthly things and allow them to have preeminence in life you will suffer the same judgment as what was prepared for the angels of Satan and Satan himself. So we are in a time frame right here that is very crucial. You hear me? This is very crucial. And as everything that goes on in our world, and again, we can only look through prophecy through the lens of the, of the present moment, we are in very crucial moments. Whenever I read and hear news stories and I read and see that there's a possibility that China and Russia will be with some type of support for the Taliban and what they're doing in Afghanistan, which is against Israel. And I, I start to think about how the Bible says there will be a day in the book of Revelation, an army that will come from the east, that will come in against the nation of Israel. Do you know where Russia and China is in relationship to Israel? East. And the Taliban, along with ISIS, is some of the biggest forms against the nation of Israel. If they yoke up together, that could provide the army that the book of Revelation talks about that will come across the spot in the Euphrates River. Now, I know some of you are like, what are you talking about? Read Revelation. It's there. We've talked about these things now, but I just bring it up again just because of things that are pawns that are moving on the chess table. We will become... We will be conformed to what we commit to. And I'm pleading with you today as the John the Revelator pleaded and as every other prophet has pleaded throughout their generation time, I plead with you today. Walk after the Lord. Be a mere image of the Lord. 
We can bow our heads all across this place today. Holy Ghost. Oh, I wish we could just start praying right now and crying out to God. We need those prayers of David. We need some of those psalms that, of prayer that says, Search me, O Lord. We need some of those psalms that say, that Try me, O Lord. We need some of those psalms where we want him to get into our inward parts and discover anything, amen, that is out of, of alignment, that's miscued, hallelujah, from his will and his purpose. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, there's some people perhaps here that's been on the periphery, they've been on the edge. Hallelujah. And the Lord's moved just from spoken things to visible things in our world just to try to shake us from complacency and shake us, if you will, from our spots and bring an awareness to our lives, if you will. Oh, I do not want to be given to them who draw back. I don't want to be the man that puts his hand to the plow and look back. For that man is not fit for the kingdom of God, the word says. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! We can't, we can't afford to be complacent in this hour. Listen to me, we can't afford. You know, COVID came a year ago or so and it was so new to everybody. And everybody was on pins and needles and everybody had you, if you will, a spiritual awakening. But now it's been around for a while and it's coming through again. And now it's a little bit more of an old hat. Amen. And we are not as sensitive as we once were to what's going on in the world because, well, this is just the way it is. And here's COVID again. No big deal. We went through this before. But folks, there's going to be an hour. There's going to be a day. There's going to be a moment that's going to change the very dynamics of life forever. And we will change either unto his image or we will be postured and, and guided, if you will, by the false religion of the world that will be left here to take the image of something that will damn us for sure for hell. I want to mirror his image. I want to just maintain what he created in the garden. I want to mirror that. I want to mirror that. I need that. I need that power. I need that dominion. Amen. Over all the power of the enemy and over all authority over the enemy. Part and parcel for me being made in that image was so that I would have the dominion. Amen. To be able to walk and have authority and dominion and cast out and cast down and cast aside. We need it. The New Testament scripture, when it speaks of sin, it talks about the deceivableness of sin. The deceivableness of sin. Sin doesn't come always out bold and bold face and yeah, that's no, it deceives. It's the deceivableness of sin. Hallelujah. Let's raise our hands one more time. These altars are open. If anybody wishes to pray, I want to be made in his image. I want to be made after his likeness. I want him to have preeminence in my life and predominance in my life. If there's going to be any mark on me, let it be the mark of his name and baptism. If there's any mark on me, let it be the mark of speaking in new tongues as I've been infilled with the Holy Ghost. If there's any mark on me, help me to mirror his death, burial, and resurrection in my life. Hallelujah. Let the law of God 
be upon my mind. Let the law of God be upon my heart. Hallelujah. Let the circumcision without hands take place upon me. Oh, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. I need thee. I need thee. Brother Mason, can we sing just a little bit here today? The altars are open. People can be praying. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.